0: I am blessed and or cursed with the insight that everything is connected. In fact, if you look at my Clifton Finder results, connectedness is one of my top five strengths. This is obviously, to me, one of the reasons I like product management so much. It's the ultimate connecting role. And in fact, it's in the title of this podcast, A Familiar Saying About Product Managers, All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, which means if there's some problem with my product, it doesn't work, no one wants to buy it those who do buy it are unhappy, those are all ultimately my responsibility. Now, in this episode, I'm going to talk specifically about the second point there, no one wants to buy it. Let's assume I've managed to find a market problem we're solving, and I've created a solution to the problem that's superior for some people to all their other choices. But for some reason, we, not me, I'm not a salesperson, can't sell it. So even though it's the marketing team trying to generate leads, and it's the sales team trying to close those leads... It's really my responsibility to make sure those efforts are successful, at least with respect to my product. And that portion of my responsibility is one good way to define go to market the stuff I have to do to make sure that marketing can get qualified leads for my product and that sales can qualify, pitch, and close those leads effectively. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 70 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. Now, I do this podcast because I think there are better models and ways of thinking about doing product management and being a product manager. Unfortunately, too often, we're pitched and trained on the wrong old models and ideas. And in each episode, I try to shatter the old thinking or at least challenge it and give you new ideas and new mental models and new approaches to what we do, why we do it, how to do it better and more effectively, and the impact of improving all of those things. Now, today's topic addresses the pervasive concept that the job of selling and marketing the product is down to sales and marketing. It turns out this whole process can only really work well if product management contributes in the right way. And you can find the notes for this show, plus a place to leave me a comment or a complaint on this episode at alltheresponsibility.com slash 70. There'll be some links to other podcast episodes that are related, also to the information about the Clifton Strengths Finder, as I mentioned earlier, and a lot of other good stuff. Now, one thing I should mention, this go-to-market repair stuff or the thinking about go-to-market, it only works if you actually do have a product that people want and that some people have been successful with. Go-to-market can't fix the situation of a product that no segment wants, a product that isn't better than its alternatives, right? That's a much harder problem to solve. You really have to replace the product in that case. So let's get into what go-to-market is and what's the purpose of go-to-market and why do we do it? Well, it's just another way of saying getting people to buy your product and hopefully be happy about it, and ideally to do that in kind of a repeatable way. So what is that process? What is the canonical process for go-to-market? Well, roughly speaking, you do marketing to get leads. Those leads go through a qualification process once they come in the door. The qualified leads then go through a sales process. Now, I'm going to skip the complications of the sales process, but maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode. In fact, some basic training on what the salesperson does with the lead to turn it into a sale when I was very young would have been extremely helpful to me. So I'm going to do that for you guys at some point, really talk about what the actual process of selling is. Now, eventually the lead turns into a sale or it doesn't, right? So this all starts from the lead coming into what is often called the sales funnel. First of all, Why do they come into your funnel? Well, your marketing drew them in. So let's say that happened. What are the ideal characteristics of those leads in your funnel? Well, ideally, you can sell something to them, right? They're the people that need the thing that you make. What makes someone likely to buy your product? Well, they have the problem that your product solves. They believe your product is the best solution to the problem, and they have the money and inclination to solve that problem right now. That's the ideal lead. Well, what if the lead doesn't have the problem your product solves? Well, they're not a good lead. They're unqualified. So one goal of your funnel is not just to get leads into it, but to kind of reject unqualified leads. How do you do that? Well, you make the funnel seem very appealing to people who have the problem you solve, and you make the funnel less appealing to people who don't have the problem you solve. And how do you do that? Well, perhaps you mention the problem itself, or perhaps you mention the type of solution your product provides. In other words, You don't go general, you don't go unspecific, you go more specific. Now, sometimes you can't do that in a direct way. For example, if your product is a project management tool, this is something from my own experience, if it's a project management tool, but it's specifically focused on a particular segment of project management offices and companies of a specific size, maybe you actually need to do some differentiation in your marketing funnel. You might say something along the lines of, if you have a few projects or you're an accidental project manager and you don't need this, but if you're like this guy Joe here, who's one of our successful companies, but if you're like this guy Joe here who has 20 projects going on right now and who is one of 20 people on the project management team at his company, you maybe do need our product because you have problems X, Y, and Z. And here's what Joe says about our solution. And you might even put a quote in about why Joe is so happy. Now, if you make an ad or a web page or a lead magnet that says all those things, then you're much more likely to get people like Joe into your funnel and much less likely to get people like Sarah over there who is totally happy with Microsoft Project, meaning she'd be totally unhappy with our solution. The point of this is that you want the leads that come in not just to be people that have the right title, but people who have the right title in the right company with the right kind of scale of responsibilities Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The people that have the problem that your product actually solves. In the project management space, there's hundreds of projects. They all s- solve slightly different problems. Some are appropriate for people that are the only project manager in a small company. Some are appropriate for people that are one of hundreds of project managers. Some are appropriate for people who are one of 20 project managers. And there are other characteristics you can use as well. So that's just an example. So this funnel, the sales funnel, this marketing funnel that brings in the right leads, it's a beautiful model for how your product sales work in an ideal world. Of course, for that to work, the funnel itself has to work, meaning the right people come into the funnel. And during the sales process, we say the right things to those people to make them believe correctly that our product is their best alternative. If the wrong people enter the funnel or too many of the wrong people or if the sales team doesn't know how to talk to them correctly, it's very easy to have poor sales results. And it's actually very common for this to happen. So what do we do about this as an organization? And what is our responsibility as product managers to enable the organization to have a good sales funnel for go-to-market to actually work? Well, I like to break this down into four fundamental components of what I call product knowledge. Product knowledge is what marketing uses to create marketing programs for the product. And it's what sales uses to qualify guide discovery with, and then eventually close the prospect. The four components that I like to talk about are the market segment that has the problem your product solves. It's not everyone. In the example I gave about project management, it's project managers and project management offices in companies that have maybe thousands of projects, and there's maybe 20 or 50 project managers. Not smaller than that, not much bigger than that. It's that exact market segment. And in fact, at that company, we had even more segmentation criteria. But the point is, it's not everybody. It's specific people for whom your product is the best alternative. That's who you're targeting. Then you want to be able to articulate the problem that your product addresses for this segment and how it does that, right? So this is about the product's features, what it does, things like that. You also need to be able to articulate the reasons your product is actually the best choice for these people versus their other choices. And what are their other choices? Well, obviously there's other products that also do similar things. But there's also, if you're trying to sell a business application, a spreadsheet is often a common alternative to buying your project. Or maybe building their own solution. That's something that a lot of times people will do. They'll try that. Now, ideally they'll fail at that, uh, but it's actually a really good buying sign if they tried and failed because it means they really think it's worth doing but they couldn't do it themselves. And that's a good buying sign. The final piece, the final piece of the four components is a set of objection handling information for moving the sales process along. Because your prospects are going to have a perception of risk. Basically, you're telling them, oh, my product is going to do everything you need. It's going to, it's better than sliced bread. It's going to solve all your problems. It's better in all these ways than any other thing you could choose. And they're not going to believe you. Why should they believe you? You don't you know, they don't have a good basis on which to believe you. And so you are you need to provide for the sales organization tools for helping them address those fears, right? Because a really bad outcome for the prospect is for them to believe what you tell them, buy your product, and then have it fail for them. That's not good for anybody. It's not good for them. It causes bad feelings for about your company. And those aren't good customers. So you don't want to have those people as customers. So you want to make sure that the sales team not only can qualify bad matches out, but can make sure that good matches really get to understand why the thing is going to work for them. And that's a lot of what objection handling is all about. Now, I do have some podcast episodes about objection handling. I'll put links to those in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 70. Now, let me give you a quick note on some of the things I'm talking about. So I'm using terms and ideas in this episode that are not, meant to be taken exactly literally. They're not incorrect, they're not even incorrectly used, but they're used in what I call a schematic way. The definition of schematic as an adjective is symbolic and simplified. My goal is to give you a conceptual model, but not necessarily detail. So I described a sales funnel. Well, sales funnels are more complicated than what I described, really. And creating an ad based on the market segment that the product management team helps provide. It's a little more detailed than what I said. You know, some people use the word market segment in a more specific and particular way. And I'm just using the word to mean a group of people, especially a group of people who have have the problem that your product solves. Now, some people call that a target market. There's lots of other terms, I'm sure. The point is that when I say these words like market segment, think of them as schematics, as a way to help you think about what you're trying to achieve, namely selling your product or giving your teammates in sales and marketing the tools to sell your product. Now, in this podcast, I share mental models schematics for understanding, approaching, and manipulating the world around our product. They're not specific methodologies, typically. I mean, what do I even mean by a problem when I say that products solve problems? Well, obviously that means a little more than just a problem, and a particular prospect might not even identify the thing your product helps with as a problem per se. They might say it's a situation that needs to be improved or an opportunity they want to take advantage of. That's all fine. We're using the word problem to be a symbol for that need that the prospect has, however they talk about it. And in fact, when we actually go out and market to them, we want to talk about it in the words that they would use anyway. Now, I think the reason this whole little sidebar has come up for me today is that not only is it sometimes a challenge when people take what I say literally, and this is not just a problem for me, of course rather than symbolically. But there's sometimes in real life a bigger challenge and one I'm experiencing the last few days when people can't even understand or agree on the literal meaning of words. And I'm having some challenges around that at the moment. So there's a few of us talking about a particular change we need to make and some business rules. And the problem is that we're talking about this change. we haven't. What we haven't done is sort of made a drawing or walked through an example or done anything concrete. And I think it's causing communication problems. We're basically using attributing different meanings to the same words, more or less. And it means we understand how things work in different ways. It's going to cause a big problem if we don't solve it. And, of course, this is not an unusual situation. Miscommunication like this happens in lots of ways, and there's a lot of ways to overcome that. And so one way, one of the best, is to change the modality of the communication. So we've been using words on these remote phone calls because we're all working remotely. And we're looking at UI screens that we share, but no one has really drawn a simple flowchart or walk through an actual example. So I believe five minutes of this new modality will actually get us all on the same page and ensure that a potentially bad outcome doesn't occur. This is just something that happened today and I thought about it. And so the idea of modality is pretty powerful and shifting the modalities to help improve communication. And this is actually one of the things that you know, you're sort of doing as a product manager and go-to-market is you're actually trying to shift the modality of we have a tool that does the thing that we call it project management, to being more explicit and and saying it's for these specific people for these specific types of projects. Again, projects being a symbol for whatever it is that your that your product actually does. Okay, so that little rant out of the way. And by the way, the schematic concept really applies to all my episodes. I don't really give you specific details on all things. I'm sort of give you some ideas about mental models that you can take and do stuff with. Let's get back to this podcast episode about go to market. Oh, and one more thing. Speaking of different modalities, I am actually working on an ebook about go to market. It's not quite done yet, but I'll let you know when it's ready. And some of the topics I mentioned in this episode are covered in the book as well, often in more detail. And in particular, I go a lot deeper into the value proposition, into competitive objection handling, and into how to make a demo that converts. That'll be out soon. So I was talking about the four components of product knowledge that product management should provide as part of go-to-market, but I also think it's interesting to link those components to another concept I've talked about in the past, the three laws of marketing physics. This is a concept, a super powerful concept, I got from Doug Hall's Jumpstart Your Business Brain, one of my favorite books about innovation. So I've written a bit on the blog about the three laws of marketing physics, and I mentioned the book which I highly re- recommend, in my book review episode number 324. And these four items that I just mentioned tie into that really well. So I'll give you, li- there'll be links to the books and other resources in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com 70. 70 is all you need to remember. The three laws say that to be successful, your product needs to have an overt benefit, a dramatic difference, and a real reason to believe. Now, there's four components in the product knowledge package that I talked about, and there's three laws, so let me talk about the mapping between those. Well, the overt benefit actually maps to both the segment and the problem. The first two components, a well-defined market segment and a well-articulated statement of the problem that they have and how your product solves it, is really the overt benefit. You know, these prospects know that they're suffering from this problem. Again, remember, problem is a symbolic term here. They've tried to solve it before. Perhaps they've tried other solutions or tried to build it themselves, and they failed. You know, the trickiest challenge in the overt benefit component is making sure that the way you talk about the problem is the way that they understand the problem. April Dunford, in her book, tells a great story about trying to sell a database product. When she checked with her few successful customers, she learned that they thought of her product as a data warehouse solution, not a database, although from a technical standpoint, of course, it was a database. What she learned was that her target segment was perfectly happy with their database solutions, but they were really struggling with the data warehouse solution and that's where, they needed this, that's where they needed the help. The overt benefit is that your product solves a particular problem that the prospect understands and can identify for a particular segment of people who have that problem. Now the dramatic difference, of course, is all the things that make your product a better choice for these prospects than their other alternatives. Not much need to elaborate on that one. It's just the differentiators. The real reason to believe, though, is a little more complicated. It's very important, and it's where your communication and persuasion skills really come to the forefront. And it maps, of course, to the objection handling component of the product knowledge. You know, I call this component objection handling. And there's lots of layers and dimensions to it. But to kind of simplify it a little bit, the objections I'm most concerned about are the prospect's perceptions of risk about getting your product, right? And they have three main risks that they're worried about. They're worried if it will work. That is, will our product do all the things we say it will for the customer? Just like everybody else, they've been burned before, bought something that didn't do what the salesperson said it did, which left them angry, looking dumb, and out of pocket. They also want to know if they can implement it. This is what I call the change management risk. That is, can they handle the change management impact of the new solution, which might involve training their people, getting new equipment, updating all their standard operating procedures and all the things that they do, and who knows what all. There's lots of things that go into change management. It definitely means that a lot of tribal knowledge will suddenly become worthless, so there's likely to be people management issues as well. So change management is a pretty big thing you need to think about how to reduce the prospect's perception of the risk of change. And then finally, the prospect is always going to be thinking at any given time, is this the best thing to spend my money on right now? They might be thinking, well, I could spend less money solving some other problem that I have and get a comparable ROI. There's always someone else who's willing to use the budget that your prospect has. If your prospect indeed has the budget, they might have to fight for it as well anyway. So your objection handling information needs to address all these perceptions of risk. So by the way, if you're struggling with go-to-market, finding new customers for your awesome product that existing customers love... Maybe I can help you out. I have availability for a few new coaching clients, and you can test me out with no obligation, reducing your perception of risk about will it work. On a 30-minute free coaching call, just go to alltheresponsibility.com slash coaching, set up an appointment with me, and even in a short call like this, you can get a lot of value. It's not a sales pitch for my coaching. It's an actual coaching call. But, you know, if you find it valuable, you might want to continue on. That would be great for me, and I think it would be great for you. Totally up to you, but you can get started with a free call. Alltheresponsibility.com slash coaching is the place to go to schedule that. So I talked about the four core pieces of product knowledge, knowledge and let's talk about sort of a structure for, for those things. One of them is the value proposition. This encapsulates who the ideal t- customer is, what their problem is, articulated from their percept- perspective and their words, what our solution does for them, and why it's a better choice than competitors. This is can be short or long, but it, it, it sort of encompasses that whole thing. You can think of it as an elevator pitch for your product, including why you should buy our product instead of some other solution. Um, you want to give the organization or the, the teams a script that goes along with it or training or some kind of information that gives the sales team the ability to not be an expert about your product, because they're never going to be the expert you are, but to be able to say the right things in response to questions and to lead the prospect along in the sales cycle. You obviously have to provide competitive information so they can explain why our product is a better choice in more detail in response to specific questions. There's objection handling, as I mentioned, for the various things that the prospect will be concerned about. And ideally, you actually want to do as much of this as possible in the form of customer stories. But often we don't have this fully supported by customer stories at the outset. But you, as many customer stories as you have of successful customers who've addressed some of these issues, those are valuable. I go into this in a lot more detail in another podcast episode, which I'll put into the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com 70. So there's a few things we're not responsible for, and we don't have to provide these things. For example it's not up to us to provide sales skills. You know, in particular, we shouldn't have to provide training in how to use all this material we're providing, at least in the ideal situation. Nonetheless, interestingly enough, we can sometimes provide good sales coaching. And this is one reason it's good to have product managers on sales calls. We can often see where there's an additional information we should provide or more guidance we should provide on the information that the salespeople have, right? Right. We may notice that the salespeople don't actually know enough about a particular component of the problem that we solve or how to handle a particular objection. And then we can give them that information and also make it part of the sales training. We don't have to provide marketing skills either. That's the domain of the product marketing team. And in particular, we don't have to run the marketing programs You might actually have to run marketing programs in a small company if you're the product manager and you're sort of doing product marketing at the same time. But generally speaking, that's the domain of product marketing. And you don't actually have to provide the exact words that sales and marketing use. I mean, if we have good words, we can provide some guidance. But marketing is usually better at words than we are. And individual salespeople might be better than us at words as well. But they do need the concepts and the knowledge behind those words to make them effective. You know, the big things to watch out for, though, are if marketing waters the story down, especially removing kind of dramatic and emotionally engaging components in favor of rational business results, which we know are not that persuasive or influential. And we also have to watch out for sales overhyping or overstating our capabilities or results. So, those are the two big things to watch out for. Now, most go to market efforts have a lot more stuff in them than what I've just outlined. But these are the basics. And the fact is, if you don't do a good job on these, it doesn't really matter about the rest. Now, there isn't kind of an elephant in the room as well. Just want to mention it. Some people have been trained that this is not how you go to market. Some people have been trained that you talk about your technology. You don't bother to learn what the customers say about your product. And especially you don't learn about their personal and emotionally compelling success stories. I was stuck in this situation for a long time myself. This is Often the situation at a technology-driven company where the founders are technologists and not salespeople. And some of my products, which were truly great products, one in particular, were less successful than they would have been if I had done this right. And if, I, if the company hadn't been sort of stuck in this world of talking about our technology as opposed to talking about what we did for the customers or for the, for the prospects. So there's a few things that are kind of red flags about this elephant. One is a set of benefits that are only about business results. In other words, it's great to have a – maybe you have a tool that helps sales become more effective. And it's great to be able to say our, our customers improve sales results by 10%. That's a business result. It's somewhat interesting. It's not as interesting as most of our customers get a promotion within three months. That's a personally compelling result. And if it's true, you wouldn't want to say it if it weren't true. That's a really compelling reason to buy for the person that is writing the check for this sales tool, right? You want to look out for obviously manufactured quotes from customers. Now, I often talk about the fact that you can can construct quotes on behalf of the customer, but they should sound like a customer, and they should be things that customers would actually say if they were really articulate and not just something that came out of your own mind, right? So you may may talk to a customer, and they may tell you, A story about how things are so much better because of your product. But the story they told you may not actually be very quotable because they didn't say it in a very organized way, or they used kind of lots of ums and ahs, or whoever, whatever reason. It's fine to rewrite what they say as your quote, particularly if you get their approval on that. You don't want to just make up a quote without talking to a customer. That's that's bad. And it's it's a sign of not really being customer-driven. I think it's a red flag when, you, when marketing stuff has quotes from the CEO of your company and not from the customer's company or from some representative of the customer. Sometimes a CEO quotes are useful. Sometimes in press releases, they have some reason for being there. But a quote from a customer is, is almost always better. And if you don't have good stories of how your customers are achieving meaningful transformation as a result of your product, that's also a red flag. So let's talk about three things you can do today to wind this up. Start where you are, obviously. Think about how much of this you have done already. And here's a checklist. Can you articulate the problem in the customer's language? Can you articulate your differentiators? Can you articulate the most common objections and how to handle them? So that's the first thing to start with. You probably actually have a lot of this already because if you've done a good job of doing market discovery when you and you've done a good job of listening to customers as you've developed your product, you probably have a lot of this stuff. Second thing is you should test what you have against what the salespeople and marketing people are actually saying, what the, mar- what the marketing programs are saying. Are they aligned with what you know about, what you've learned, what you came up with? The problem with not doing this right is that you waste your marketing and sales resources on unqualified people who literally don't care about what you do. Right. So the more that you can give marketing guidance on finding the right people, even if they can't find as many of them as finding the wrong people, it turns out it's way more cost effective to find fewer but correct people than more but incorrect people. It just you can't make any money off the off the people that aren't qualified. And so don't bother to get them even if you can get a lot of them. Then finally, number 3 is to figure out where you're the weakest right now and start to make some inroads on that. Or you know, one of the things people always talk about is don't focus on the weaknesses, focus on the strengths. Maybe in this case that would work as well. Figure out where you have the easiest win. Figure out where you can get the team to operate at a much higher level pretty easily. That may be an area that are already pretty strong, but you're going to give them more more capabilities, more fuel for their rocket ship or whatever it is. Now, this whole this set of st- three things I just mentioned, they're not actually things you can do in one day. You can start in one day. They're not trivial, but if you have a product and some happy customers, but you can't get consistent sales, it's most likely because this messaging is not right, and these are the activities you need to take to fix that messaging so that the marketing gets the right leads and sales can get the those leads closed So I've covered this a little bit in this episode, but I want to have another episode about specifically the roles and responsibilities who's responsible for these things. How should the collaboration between the different roles work ideally, and how is everything tied together? Also, a little bit about what is the sort of deliverable? What do the deliverables for this look like? You know, How should you deliver this value proposition, this market segmentation, the set of stories about your customers? All really good questions we'll cover in a future episode. But I hope the ideas that I presented in this episode will give you something to work from as you... Work on improving the sales of your good product that maybe you're not having as much traction in sales as you as you'd like. I mentioned several resources and books in previous podcasts in the episode, and of course you can find links to all of them in the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com/7070. You'll also find links to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, the whole list of places where you can listen to podcasts, and obviously by subscribing. The benefit is that you'll get new episodes automatically when I release them. There's also more on the show notes page, how to get in touch with me directly, a comment section. You will find a link to the coaching sign-up page as well. I'd love to hear from you. There's a link to my book, The Secret Product Manager Handbook, which is a great book if you're just starting out in product management or want a refresher. Or maybe you have somebody you'd like to share the wonders of product management with. This book is a good one for that. Your recommendations, ratings, and reviews on the podcast, if you happen to do that, help other product managers and innovators find the podcast, so it really helps me out and spreads the word. And don't forget, if you're struggling with go-to-market, or if you're struggling with a roadmap, which was the topic of the last episode, or just want some advice or a sounding board, schedule a free one-half-hour coaching session with me at alltheresponsibility.com coaching. It'll definitely be worth your time and your money, because it's free, I promise. Until next time, this is Nels Davis, Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.